Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, and uh, welcome to the show. It's called Stand to Reason. I'm your host, and uh, I had a strange moment. Just a second ago, I was wondering, what's wrong? I feel somehow naked here as I sit before the screen and get ready to start the show, and the music is starting to come up, and I realize I don't have a microphone. It was spun off to the side here, so I had to grab. Yeah, thank you, Kyle. I'm getting a thumbs up from Kyle. Uh, yeah, this is just an old, it's a senior moment here. Oh, yeah, I need one of those things to make this whole show work. Uh, again, the show is Stand to Reason, the number 855 Two four three nine nine seven five. We have people queuing up already for uh, for conversation. Glad to uh, glad to see that. I uh, I actually want to start though by taking an open mic call, and the reason is is because this particular call is 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 uh, I thought it would be a good one to launch a, a rather a, a larger commentary. In other words, the call touches on something I want to talk about anyway. And so it will be a springboard to just open up with a concern that has to do how we use Scripture, um, and in particular, the promises that we can claim for ourselves. Now, uh, I have, Christian, 50 years September, right? And I've been on radio, this is 33, my 33rd year, stand a reason, 30 years, May 1st. That means in, what, three weeks, two weeks? Our 30-year anniversary, you'll be hearing a lot more about that as uh, the year proceeds, because we've got lots of fun things lined up just as a way of celebrating what God has done through this great team and what this great team has done uh, with God's help over the last 30 years. But in all those years, I continually run into this difficulty with Christians who— um, sadly misread scripture and i say sadly because they are they are uh, christians who are well meaning who go to the bible as god's word but they don't realize when they misread it it is no longer god's word just the same as if i misquoted you i would be misquoting you I wouldn't be communicating your ideas. I would communicate something that you didn't mean or didn't hold to or didn't believe if I somehow twisted or corrupted the meaning of your words. And in fact, Paul makes this comment somewhere in the New Testament. He talks that we are not like others who corrupt the Word of God. Now, what is corrupt? That means to distort it, to to make it less than what it is. So when we misunderstand the meaning of a text, especially in this—well, whenever we misunderstand, then the text, the way we understand it, is no longer God's Word. And if it no longer has God's, is God's Word, it no longer has God's power associated with it. I, I, I hope that's reasonably uncontroversial, okay? And whenever we misapply something— in other words, we take a statement that we understand in a certain way, and maybe an accurate way, as far as the words go, but we apply the statement in a way that was not intended by the author, who is God, ultimately, then we have distorted or corrupted that work. For example, I might be reading the Gospels, and there I read about... Um, 
about, <laughs> I'm chuckling, well, you'll find out why in a moment. I read about Jesus instructing Peter to throw the net on the opposite side of the boat, boat, which is in the deep water. Now, I don't know this reference, but I just remember it's there, and you probably recall it too. We've been fishing all day, and we haven't been able to catch any fish. Jesus said, throw the net in again on the deep side. That was his instructions. And then Peter makes an unbelievable catch, all right? Now, this is a miracle, right? But um, I read, since I'm a fisherman, and I like bass fishing especially, and coming up in a few weeks I'll be on my way to Wisconsin so I could do some of that. Um, I read an article once that cited this passage and if, to support the idea that Jesus was teaching Peter that big fish were in deep water. And if you want to catch big fish, you fish in deep water. Now, by the way, there is some truth to that, plus the fish in the deeper water are not as pressured as the fish in the shallowed water. They don't see as many lures, and therefore there may be a little bit easier to catch even the bigger ones. But that, obviously, I hope you see this, was not Jesus' intention. So even though he was citing Jesus and applying Jesus' instruction to his life, he was not employing the Word of God as the Word of God. The meaning got distorted, the instruction was misplaced, and therefore there was no divine authority or power any longer attached to it. Do you see that? That's really important. Silly little illustration about a goofy guy who's a fisherman who read something about fishing and misunderstood it, but this kind of thing happens all the time. Okay, now I, <clears throat> pardon me, I um, read something, and I think it was actually a couple of years ago now, that John Piper had written, a man who I tre respect tremendously. But it had to do with a passage of Scripture that I thought, and I have spoken of fairly regularly, as being misapplied by a massive number of Christians. And, uh, and actually misapplied in an inconsistent fashion. They don't even apply the entire passage consistently. And apparently, when John Piper weighed in on this passage, his comment was, well, the promises are for all of us. And in the New Testament, there's a teaching about that, that, that God's promises are yes to us. And so then he, the application of that passage, I think, in 2 Corinthians, uh, was, well, when we read a promise to someone in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, then that promise is yes to believers in the New Testament times. Now, uh, the particular passage that was being discussed there and he had been asked about, was Jeremiah 29, 11, which reads, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Everybody's familiar with that verse because it shows up on bumper stickers and graduation cards. Uh, it's even stitched on pillows, right? And uh, since there was some controversy about this, the application of that passage to Christians now, 
uh, John Piper was questioned about it. Somebody sent in a note, and he responded publicly that he thought, yes, it does apply for the reason he gave. Now, I'm going to explain in a few moments why, and you don't want to cross swords with someone like John Piper lightly, but why that is just simply bad advice. Okay, but I'll, what I'll use with this, having offered this introduction, I want to hear what Steve has to say in one of our open mic calls. That's when you call in and leave a recorded question, which we play during the show. Therefore, you can get your questions asked, and you can do it personally. You don't have to type it out like with hashtag STRask in a short sentence or so. But you can actually record it by going to our homepage and under podcasts and live broadcasts. You can go ahead and record it there, or you can simply dial up 857-DIAL-STR, 857 857- Three four two five seven eight seven, and then leave your question. And so this is the one that Steve left um, that that uh, applies to the circumstance I just described. So let's hear from Steve. Hello, Greg. My name is Steve, and I live in Gaithersburg, Maryland, just a few miles north of D.C. As part of my daily devotional time, I read the daily devotional by John Piper, known as Solid Joys. It is generally an excerpt from one of his writings. It is always based on a specific scripture verse. Today it started with a few clauses from Jeremiah 32, verses 40 and 41. Specifically, he quoted the words, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. I will rejoice in doing them good. Then the devotional commentary starts with Piper saying, this is one of those promises of God that I come back to again and again when I get discouraged. Can you think of any fact more encouraging than that God rejoices to do you good? It seems clear from the context that this is a specific promise to the Jewish people. Clearly, Piper believes it is also a promise to him. I don't think Anyone studies and teaches the Bible more carefully than John Piper, and millions worldwide learn from him. Obviously, he has a reason for believing that some promises to the Jewish people are also promises to Christians today, and I have heard him explain his reasoning for this. Why do you disagree, and how do you determine which promises spoken by prophets to the Jewish people are also promises to Christians today? and which ones are not. Thanks so much for answering my question. Thank you, Steve. And it's a great question and really, really an important one, but there's some clarification that needs to be made. Let me offer kind of a blanket principle, okay, on uh, that really goes to the last part of your question, Steve, but really affects the entire issue, okay? And the blanket principle is that we can claim promises that our that are ours we can claim promises that are ours some of the promises in the old testament were directed at the hebrew people and they were made in light of the character of god so if the promise in general is that God delights in doing good, delights, or, or I'm looking for the citation here now, uh, uh, 
delights in um now make do very good uh, doing good to them I think that's it delight oh, oh here it is I will rejoice and doing them good my printout is a really small type even with my glasses I have a hard time seeing it I will rejoice in doing them good okay God let's just say what we learn from there is God rejoices in doing good now that's a characteristic of God so that means it isn't limited to one particular people or one particular time this is something that we can trust about God because he's God God is love there you go now John wrote that in first John was he only writing to the people um, did that verse only apply to the people to whom he was writing at the time who read first John well no obviously because this wasn't something that was peculiar for them but rather was something innate in the character of God that flows to everybody including those to whom he was writing God is love so there are some statements call them promises if you want God delights in doing good that reflect the character of God that as a result flows to everyone God delights in doing justice now he might say that to the Jews but that would apply to Gentiles as well because it's not a circumstance specific statement it is a God character specific statement that applies across the board where it's applicable because it's part of God's fixed character so given that we can cite the promises that belong to us sometimes those relate to fixed features of God's character that apply across the board and this is why it's a good habit when you're looking in the Old Testament to look from the text to God <laughs> and then to application to other circumstances not just to jump from the text say to the church so when when God says to Abraham I have made a promise to you for example and I will not break my promise okay well the promise he made to Abraham isn't our promise right that's to Abraham but the fact that God doesn't break his promises secures the reliability of other promises he's made to us so we learn from the text the application there is not the promise he made to Abraham applies to us but rather that God is a promise keeper so whatever promises he made to us he will keep those promises do you see what I'm saying here so even when he's talking to Abraham about some parochial concern of Abraham there is still something to be learned about the character of God that has broader application and incidentally I uh, John Piper would not take any exception with this I'm sure I mean I don't know him I've actually never met him read some of his material and benefited from it but just as an aside there are lots of people who are very godly who study the Bible very carefully and still come up with difference of opinion uh, this is I call this the Rhodes Scholar tactic that is just because somebody really knows his stuff doesn't mean we just have to okay well he knows his stuff so he must be right no um, there are lots of people who know their stuff and they still dis disagree what we have to look at then in this discussion between people who know a lot of stuff about the Bible is what the reasons are in the specific circumstance why they hold the view they hold then you could assess assess 
the reasons. That's it. Okay, so I just have offered you some some examples. An example, for example, an example, for example, if God promises Abraham something and says he will keep his promise, the promise that he gave to Abraham isn't necessarily for me. But it, I do learn that God's a promise keeper, so that the promises for me he will keep. All right. Now let's go back to this section here in Jeremiah, chapter twenty-two. I make it uh, thirty-two, verse forty and forty-one. Okay, and I'll read it again. And if you, what's really important is that you understand the role of Jeremiah in the Old Testament record, and a very peculiar job that he had. Actually, a couple of them. One was to speak judgment upon a disobedient Israel, okay, and the other was to alert them of something new that God was going to do. And it turned out the new thing that he was going to do for them was not just for them. How do I know that? Because I read the passage? No, because I read other passages that refer to the same thing. Okay, so let's go to this Jeremiah 32, 40 through 41. I'm, I'm just reading the verse as it was given to me. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice to do them good. Now, John Piper's focused in on God's rejoicing in doing good. That's perfectly fine. When God, God rejoices in doing good for his people. The Jews? Yes. The Church? Yes. Why? Because that's God's character. He's the kind of guy that rejoices in doing good. Why? Because he is good. And when he lives out his character, it it makes him happy. (laughs) That's why, I mean, classically, God is considered perfectly happy, because he always lives out his nature. Those things that are good and holy and characteristic of his nature. Okay, and that's what's being expressed here. But I want to focus in on something else. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Well, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. God already had a covenant with the Jews. What covenant was that? What was the covenant that God made with the Jews? Well, that was the Mosaic covenant when he brought them out of Israel, right? Sure. Okay, so he made that covenant with them. Wait, he's now he's, I will make an everlasting covenant. Was the Mosaic Covenant an everlasting covenant? Well, the answer is no. Are we under that now? Let me just ask you that. Are the Jews under that? Are we under that? Who's under the Mosaic Covenant? Well, nobody's under that. Then it's not an everlasting covenant, is it? And not only do we know that just by reflection on the nature of the covenant that was made in our circumstances now, in the chapter before this one, chapter 31, all right, this is chapter 32, and this is easy to remember because it's Jeremiah 31 and verse 31 and following. So Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah writes this, Behold, the days are coming, something's going to be in the future, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Whoa, it's a new one with the house of Israel. Oh, okay, this is with the Jews. And with the house of Judah. Okay, that's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Got it. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which 
they broke, even though I was a husband to them. Oh, okay, so now you got an old covenant that got broken. That was the Mosaic covenant. So now he's going to give them a new covenant. Okay, but this, verse 33, is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So it's something coming in the future. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then it goes on with details. Okay, so what we read here in chapter 32 of Jeremiah is is in reference to what's happening in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. In chapter 32, he says, yeah, I'll make with them an everlasting covenant, and I, and I won't turn away from that, and I'm going to continue to do good to them. Okay, now think about this. The Mosaic covenant which they broke was a, was a conditional covenant. That means if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Okay, if you're not clear on this, just go to Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. It's all there. It's very, very clear, okay? And in fact, not only does it say if you do good, you'll get good, and there's like six verses, then it says if you do bad, you're going to get bad, there's like a chapter and a half. And then he says, and by the way, when you do the good and the bad, I'm going to come back to you, okay? Uh, I'll get to that more in a moment, but see how this is all stacking up. There's an old thing that got broken that was conditional. There's a new thing that God is going to make, Jeremiah 31, 31, repeated here or referred to here in Jeremiah 32, the passage that John Piper was citing properly, no problem, identifying it as an everlasting covenant in which God will do good to them. So, so far, there is no controversy here with anything that John Piper has said, as far as I'm concerned. And in fact, nothing on this issue, which was just described, do I take exception with, as it turns out. <clears throat> the question is, I think, properly from Steve, well, wait a minute, They're, he's making this promise to the Jews, so how can we claim it? And the reason is, is because the promise of the new covenant made to the Jews was later to be re- was later revealed as the new covenant that would be for all nations, and this is referred to over and over and over in the New Testament. That's why we call it the New Testament. It is the testament of the new covenant, which Jesus, when he had the Last Supper, he said, "This is the blood of the new covenant." Ezekiel picks up on that. There's the giving of the Holy Spirit that's part of it. It's launched on Pentecost Sunday, in which on all flesh I will pour out my Spirit, as Peter then cites Joel, the prophecy there, to describe what's going on. So even though in this particular passage is a reference to the new covenant God would make with Jews, we later discover through subsequent revelation that the new covenant is the blessing upon all the Gentiles that comes out of Abraham Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It's all kind of tied together. So the Scripture explicitly expands the New Covenant provisions to Gentiles. So remember our rule. We can claim promises that are ours. This promise that John Piper is writing so beautifully about here is the promise of the New Covenant, which we know now, 
is a promise given even to Gentiles. And if it's not entirely clear, just go to Acts chapter 10, because there was Peter dragged somewhat against his will to be in the company of Cornelius and his band of Gentiles who were God-fearers but not saved. They were doing the best they could with what they had, but they were not saved. And so Peter brought the gospel that saves, which is the gospel of Jesus dying under the provisions of the New Covenant, and as they listened, they were given the Holy Spirit in virtue of their implicit faith. I mean, we didn't hear them pray to receive Christ, but it's obvious, even to Peter at the time, that they believed. They trusted. They believed what he was saying and therefore received the Holy Spirit. And he says, hey, they've received the Holy Spirit the same way we have. Therefore, let's baptize them, because they're in our community. Now the two have become one. And Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2, that, that in Christ, though the Gentiles were without God and without hope in the world, children of wrath, beginning of chapter 2, by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, not the gift, of, not the law. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Okay, and the way this works out, he goes on to explain in chapter two, is that dividing wall that was the law that kept the Gentiles separated from the Jews that has been broken down now, and he makes us all into one new body. The foundation is Christ and the apostles and the prophets, and we are being built up into a living temple as the stones on top. It's all there in chapter two. It all fits together. So this promise of a new covenant is for all of us. It fits my description of an appropriate promise perfectly. So for the record, my concern about John Piper wasn't that I disagreed across the board with him applying promises. The question here from Steve, and I have it written out, and you heard him say it, but just to be more precise and fair to him, why do you disagree with John Piper's understanding that some promises to the Jewish people apply to Christians today? I don't disagree with that in principle because this promise of the New Covenant does apply to Christians today, and that's the way he's applying it. But I do disagree that they all apply, <laughs> which was, it seemed to me, as I listened to his description, I'm not sure, maybe I read it on the air, but it was somewhat lengthy, and I didn't think it was well thought out. And maybe he'd take exception with it now, but the point then was, well, Jesus, the New Testament says the promises are yes in Christ. And so if there's a promise to the Jews in the Old Testament, it's a promise to us now. And the specific promise in view in that discussion was Jeremiah 29, 11. So what I'd like to do is come back to that. And again, making the point, some promises do apply to Christians now, depending. If the promise is relating to God's character, we can always count, no matter who's involved, that God will be God. If the promises are ones that are spoken to Jews, but broadly encompass all of God's people, like the New Covenant, and we know that because such a thing is announced clearly in the New Covenant, the New Testament, uh, then they apply to both sides. But other promises are for individuals. For example, this is hopefully I'm, I'm using a clear case example here that no one will take exception with. But in, in Genesis chapter 12, I just made reference to it, 
God said, Abraham, leave your people, go to the land I'll tell you to go, and I will make you a great nation. And all who bless you, I will bless, and all who curse you, I will curse. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, it's truncated the way I cited it, but you get the point. I have actually heard, I'm not making this up, I heard a pastor once preach that that's a promise that we could all claim for ourselves. Really? That God is going to make each one of us into a great nation? That that uh, I, that and and through us all the families, each of us individually, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, and all that. That go- no, this is a singular promise. This particular passage is the backbone. It's the central nervous system of the entire salvation project. The rest of the Bible hinges on Genesis twelve one through three. Okay, and uh, there's more that follows, of course. But I, 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 like I said, I hope I'm giving a clear case counterexample that this is not one that we can just apply to ourselves, though it's a promise made to a Jew, the first Jew, in a sense, to all Jews in virtue of the fact that they are in his loins, and he's giving birth to this nation eventually as a fulfillment of the promise, but that's not for everybody. And I hope that's pretty obvious. And frankly, I don't—I would be very surprised if John Piper would suggest that that promise is something we could all we can all apply it to our life the way it was made to Abraham. Now there is a little piece in there that certainly applies to us. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the Goyim, all the non Jews. Well I'm blessed as a Christian in virtue of that promise, but only one little sliver of that applies to me, and it's the consequence of what God was doing through Abraham. The consequence of what God is doing applies to the whole world. So I benefit from the consequences, a piece of that that does apply to me, but the promise itself, I'll make you a great nation to a particular end. No, that doesn't. That's for him. All right? All right, now with that in mind, I want to read a promise to you that's actually in the same vicinity as the Jeremiah passage that John Piper cited. Okay, this is a promise, and I'm going to ask you a question first. Does God keep his promises? Yeah. All right. Trick question. Let me read the promise. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending upon them the sword, famine, pestilence, and I will make them like split-open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, with pestilence. I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. That's a promise. I never saw that one stitched on a pillow. Who is that promise to? That promise is to Jews. So does that promise apply to Christians? If the promises to the Jews apply kind of without qualification to Christians, well, there you go. That's not a very nice promise, though. Just to give you an idea where this is located, it is located five verses after 
The verse that says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Five verses later, God says exactly the opposite. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for warfare and trouble and calamity. So you have no future and no hope. Wait a minute. How could God give two promises within five verses that contradict each other? And both promises are to Jews, because the promises are to different groups of Jews. The first group are the group that went away to exile in Babylon. How do I know that? Because it says it right there at the beginning of the chapter. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So, what have I just been reading? I've been reading the contents of a private letter to a specific group of people. The letter was sent by hand, by the hand of... This my, I need my magnifying glass. Elasa, the son of Shephan, etc., etc., to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, thus says the Lord of hosts, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem in Babylon, build houses, live there, plant gardens, eat the produce, take vines, take wives, rather, <laughs> become fathers, settle down, unpack, you're going to be there for 70 years. But I have not forgotten you. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. Wait a minute. He's saying he's going to do something he already promised to do. What was that that he promised to do? You go back to Deuteronomy, what, 29 or maybe 30. I can't read my fine print right here because I've got it written in pencil and my glasses aren't working for the fine stuff right here in this light. And you'll see that this was what he promised in Deuteronomy, that he would come back to them after he chastised them. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and hope. By the way, it doesn't stop there, because it says, you will call upon my name and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And that was the qualification back in Deuteronomy that they had to fulfill, those Jews who had rebelled against God had to fulfill, fulfill before he would listen to them and relent, and I will be found by you. And by the way, I'll restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where you have driven, been driven. So if this is for Christians, I lost, boy, I lost some money in the stock market last year, right? And so did you, most of you. Oh, wait a minute. It's coming back to me because there's the promise. 
If you haven't been to Israel yet, hey, off you go. I have been. Maybe I'll return based on this promise. No, 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 no. That's not for me. The whole thing is about something else. The whole thing is about something else, including the verse I read earlier, verse 17, which comes next. Actually, it's introduced with this phrase in verse 15. After he says, I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Oh, all the good stuff. Then, next verse. Because you have said, now this is a different group of people, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. These are the people still in Babylon who are listening to false prophets in Babylon. Because you have said that? For thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in the city, your brothers who did not go with you into exile, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am sending upon them sword, famine, pestilence, make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I'll pursue them with sword and famine and pestilence and make them a terror to the kingdoms, etc., etc., etc. See, there's two groups. One carried off to Babylon. God says, go with them. Unpack take wives, have kids, plant gardens. You're going to be there for a while, 70 years. Then I will bring you back as I promised. The rest of you who didn't listen, who are still putting your trust in some phony king and phony prophets that you're going to beat Nebuchadnezzar, look out. Because Nebuchadnezzar's not your biggest problem. I'm your biggest problem. So what we have here is an historical set of circumstances in which very particular promises are made to a very particular people under a very particular and peculiar set of circumstances, which, by the way, 70 years ago, Daniel himself understood to be such. Because in Daniel 9, he records, I read Jeremiah, 70 years are up, it's time to come home, I'm praying. That's the way Daniel understood the prophecy, just the way anybody reading the context would understand it. So when some Christian leader is brilliant and gracious and loving and kind and fabulous and everything, and I'm not being coy, says that one line in here is a promise that Christians could lift out and apply to them, is it not obvious that in this case that's not appropriate? I don't, I don't know how I can make it more obvious. If it's not obvious, then okay, then I've done my job. You make your own choice. This was a letter written to a certain people under a certain set of circumstances, and there was a blessing and a curse promised. And we want to isolate the blessing and say, this is ours, when it has nothing to do with us. It's not our verse. Now, is there something that does apply to us here? Yeah. What is it? God keeps his promises. Blessings and curse. You obey, I'll take care. You go there, unpack there in Babylon, 70 years, I'll bring you back. By the way, even the people that were alive then didn't even experience the promise, except for just a handful. Daniel was one of them, because he was a boy when he was sent over. Remember that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that whole scene? Daniel was a youngster, a young man, and he outlived the 70 years, and he outlived the Babylonians, too, and a number of others, leaders, but the people to whom this was sent, they weren't even at large the recipients of the promise. It was their children. Most of them died out. So anyway, I guess I got a little intense about this, but I, I, I did because it's so important. And I, I bear no umbrage at all against John Piper, obviously, on this issue. 
But those are the reasons that I take exception with what I had read in the past as a more blanket application of Old Testament promises to New Testament Christians. It depends. And um, the the section, um, St- Steve, that you cited, the, um, the, the piece that you were reading in, in the devotional, that included the passage from Jeremiah 32, and the fact that God rejoices in being good to us, all of that I'm totally fine with. But for the reasons that I explained. There are other passages that that I'm aware that John Piper has made a blanket application of uh, for Christians that I, I think is just flat out mistaken. And I gave all my re- that in terms of Jeremiah 31. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 29:11. It it doesn't apply in that way to us. It's not our promise. And if we make it our promise, if we try to, we purloined the promise. We've stolen it. And when you purloin a promise, then it's no longer a promise. It's not even God's Word when it's misapplied. That's my point. All right, let's take a break, and uh, we got calls on board. We'll get to them in just a moment here on Standard Reasons. Stay with us. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith, because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. All right, just a reminder, we're about a week away from our final reality of uh, the season. It's going to be in Augusta, April 21st and 22nd. Realityapologetics.com is the the place to go to sign up. Um, 
I've been talking about this reality all year long. I've seen it six times. Every single time I enjoy it, I get one more shot at it. And we've never done anything quite like this before. Now, there's a lot of room left in in uh, in, in Augusta, okay? A lot of seats available, which is very unusual. We, used, we have sold out virtually every single event uh, since all this year, okay? And uh, it might be some of you are youth leaders that your group's not going. Maybe you ought to just go and see what's happening. You don't have an idea of what, what this can be for your group. So I invite you to sign up and just take a couple of your leadership team, because next year you're going to want to go. I guarantee it, because that's the way it works, the feedback we've been getting. Also, this is uh, we're targeting um, middle schoolers and uh, high schoolers, but we're not checking IDs. I mention this a lot. If you're an old coger or somewhere middle age or a millennium or whatever, millennial or whatever they call them, it doesn't matter. Just show up. We don't even care if you're a Christian or not. Just show up. You're going to be, um, you're going to enjoy yourself for one, and you're going to be mentally stimulated in a really good way for another. Okay? This is not, I'm just saying, this is not like any other conference you've ever been to. How do I know that? Because that's what people tell us all the time. Okay, so go to realityapologetics.com and sign up for our final reality of event this year. Remember, Jay Warner Wallace is going to be there, Jason Jimenez, Mary Jo Sharp, Alan Schleeman, Mr. B of Red Pen Logic. I will actually make a, an appearance. I'll be doing a couple of workshops. Megan Allman will be there. Trip Allman will be there. This is really going to be and has been for the last five sessions a fabulous event. So I just extend the invitation to you if you haven't thought about doing that. Uh, by the way, let's see, today's Tuesday, so Wednesday uh, is when this comes out. But remember that the second and fourth Wednesday, that would be tomorrow and or the day you receive this and next, uh, John Noyce is doing his broadcast. It's called uh, To The Point Live, uh, April 12th at 12 p.m. Pacific time. Okay, he'll be live on Facebook, on Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, you can visit str.org uh, and get that. Uh, reminder about Alan showing up uh, on Saturday, April 15th at Redeemer Bible Church in Spotsylvania, Virginia. Somebody said, where's Spotsylvania? Never heard of that. There was a very famous Civil War battle fought at Spotsylvania. Where you been? I know you want to say, yeah, you were there, Cocobot. Ah, we weren't. All right. That's Spotsylvania, Virginia, Redeemer Bible Church, uh, April 15. And uh, I think I'm going to be speaking also, let's just see. Huh, it's not on here, but the day after reality, I'll have to let you know next week. I will also be at a church up in North Carolina um, speaking there. Anyway, you could get information about our um, our events and where our speakers are going to be at at str.org forward slash events. All the details there. Okay. Okay, good. Let's uh, go to the phones. We've got a lot of people in the queue, and I want to thank you for your patience. This is Phil in Oregon. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate you taking my call. You're welcome. I've never talked to never talked to you in person like this. This is like a great opportunity, so I'm very grateful. Well, I've never talked to you in person either, so it's a good opportunity for me <laughs> as well, Phil. Yeah, you um, earlier you you were talking about Cornelius uh, receiving Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit, his whole family um, that Peter saw, and and there was obviously some sign that they he could tell that they'd received the Holy Spirit. That's right. I was reading earlier also in Romans 5, uh, verse 5, and it's talking about suffering people, but 
I think it applies, I think it's meant to apply to all Christians that mm-hmm. because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has mm-hmm. been given to us. Right. And then there's uh, also in Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Correct. Now, to me, these imply, there's no, there's, they don't imply that there's a second experience where you receive the Holy Spirit, but that it's due to all of those who are brought about to ad- uh, adoption to sonship. That's verse 15, Romans 8. Um, so it can't, can't this be expected as an experience when you become a Christian that you receive this uh, experience of the Holy Spirit? Well, I tell you what can be expected is that the Spirit does something in us uh, in virtue of our faith in Christ, because that's declared pretty directly, okay? Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter 1, having believed, we received the Holy Spirit of promise, and we are sealed with that Spirit uh, until the day of redemption, I think, in chapter 5 it mentions that. Okay, so there is an objective element that is central to this this enterprise we're talking about. I almost said experience, but I want to save that word because I don't want to be misleading. Something objectively objective happens to us in virtue of our faith. Now, there are subjective ramifications for that, but the subjective ramifications come and go, all right? I think when, in Romans 5 that you cited, it says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that is given to us, okay? We read the word heart as emotion, okay? That is not the meaning of heart in the biblical period. The heart was the the center of the self, okay? Guard your hearts. That doesn't guard your emotions when it says that in Proverbs or wherever. It's guard your mind, your soul, your, you know, your internal, the center of yourself. But um, so when the love of God is shed abroad inside of us, okay, he's referring there in Romans to an objective reality. And uh, like you said, that there are tribulations that people experience that he speaks to. Not only this, we exult in our tribulation, knowing that, notice the knowing, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. So he's telling you the kinds of things you can count on during the hardships, even if maybe you're not feeling it. Hope doesn't disappoint. Why not? Because the love of God has been shed abroad in our heart through the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we are we are directly aware subjectively of the love of God coming in when there's hardship and trial. Sometimes we're not. That doesn't change the fact that the love of God is shed abroad inside of me, is manifest there. I'm reading these passages so that I can be aware that the Holy Spirit or the love of God is manifest to me there. You know, if if the love of God was always experiential to the Christian, we would not need to be told it was the case, because we wouldn't need the Bible to tell us we'd be experiencing it. It's these times that Paul is referring to in Romans 5, when there is hardship and difficulty, that we are reminded that that the love of God is shed abroad in our heart. We are still His, okay? And that's yep. certainly that has a subjective manifestation sometimes, certainly does in Romans 8. It says, uh, the Spirit Himself testifies 
with our spirit. Now that means we are, in a certain sense, we are, I want to be careful how I use this, but we are being told in a certain fashion that we are His. Now it's not a voice, it's not a speaking, but it's a testifying with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. So notice there is also a reference to suffering, and the encouragement that in the midst of that, that's okay. You still belong, and there is a, there is a, I think this does refer to a subjective testifying of the Spirit to us that we belong to Him. And, uh, but again, like all subjective experiences, they come and go. It isn't like we are always feeling that thing in the moment. And this is one reason that we are being encouraged of the facts of it. There's a reference here being made to the subjective element that we some we experience. So, so there there are certainly a, a whole lot of subjective elements to our 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 Christianity and our friendship with God. But these are just. Are you married? Yes. Okay. Well, see, there you go. <laughs> yeah. You well, say I, I do. I you have your honeymoon, and then yeah. you know, then it's up and down for the rest of your life, kind of thing, because you're yeah, always married. I, you know, that always stays. Right, I, and I totally get um, what you're saying about um, we don't always feel it. But it seems like um, verse 16 could be talking about, well, you've had this experience before where you, that your spirit testified with your spirit that you could be reminded of. It seems like it, you know, it, it's just difficult for me to imagine, and this is kind of where I'm going with this, mm-hmm. it's difficult for me to imagine somebody being desperate to have their sins forgiven, coming to God and getting forgiveness for, for sins and not feeling that relief. You know, kind of like the um, the tax collector in Luke who um, was beating in his chest and wouldn't look up to heaven. Right. He walked away justified. He walked away justified, and I have to feel like in my heart that if God's throwing a desperate person who's drowning a rope, that that person, when they grab that rope, they're going to realize by some kind of internal connection with God or something that they have been saved. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't imagine that that uh, tax collector walking away and not knowing that he was justified or forgiven. Well, my response—I'm I, 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 sympathetic to what you're saying. I just got less than two minutes left here. Let me just cram this in real quickly. I can't imagine it. And uh, I think I, I have talked to people with lots of different experiences. I'm just thinking of my, my uh, French athe- former atheist friend, um, Guillaume Bignon. And when he finally understood what Jesus did for him, there was a tremendous release for him. But the guy who's beating his breast there in the back of the synagogue, uh, he doesn't have the content that tells him, okay, now you are now justified. There may be a feeling there. I'm not sure, but what Jesus was focusing in on was the fact of the justification and virtue of his repentance. And the fact is also, even for really good Christians, there are periods of time that we go through where we feel guilty and unforgiven, and this is why we need to go back to the text and be reminded, having our hearts sprinkled clean of an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, because he who promised is faithful. That's in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. So there are lots of passages like that that are meant to remind us of the fact of our salvation and our regeneration and our cleansing, even when in the moment we may not feel that. 
I, yeah, I again, do... I'm not I'm not just talking talking about a constant feeling, but a sense that when we come to God, that there is something within us. But well, I think you know, characteristically, that's, always... that's I think if somebody's communicated the gospel properly, and people respond in their heart, then I think there's going to be some sense of that that you're saying. If it never happens, then, uh, you know, it's it's hard to know what's going on with an individual, and I just would have to talk to him to find out. But what I'd want to yeah. make sure is that if you fulfill the requirements, that is, put your faith in Christ, then you are forgiven, and you have an advocate with the Father in Christ Jesus the righteous, the propitiation for our sins. That's the facts of the matter, and sometimes our feelings have to follow the facts of the matter. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a tough sequence, but sometimes it's going back to the Word and reminding ourselves. I've had times where I've questioned, am I really forgiven? You know, this way I have to go back to the objective statements, and then the feelings follow most of the time. Phil, I appreciate your calls. Nice chatting with you. That's it for the show, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.